Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. This is News Talk and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. I've got some very interesting guests today and we'll have some great conversations. And coming up on today's show, you might have seen in the news that some of the big four companies are now having to train new recruits with basic communication skills that are necessary just to enter the workforce. Is it because students are shut off during COVID or is there something more and deeper? Well, we'll be finding out why later in the show. And with the EU's highest court set to hold a hearing later this month on the 13 billion euro Apple tax case, Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post is going to be here to remind us of the background to the case and we'll be assessing what might be in the final ruling on the world's biggest ever antitrust case. And finally, machines are learning more than ever before while humans are learning less. And it's not fanciful, therefore, that people might fear that special skills may be sidelined in the future. Indeed, this is an issue that's already hitting Hollywood Hills as writers strike for safeguards to stop their members' work being replaced by AI in the future. We love hearing from you and you can email us, as always, at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, let's start with that topic of training new recruits in the workplace who are still dealing with the social implications of COVID-19. Deloitte and PwC are to roll out extra training for the youngest UK staff after noticing that their recruits whose education was disrupted by lockdowns have weaker teamwork and communication skills than previous cohorts. Joining me now to discuss this is Caroline Reedy from the HR Suite. Caroline, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks, Mandy. Delighted to chat to you. Now, Caroline, this weaker teamwork and communication skills, is this something that you're seeing across the board in recruitment? Without doubt, uh, we see a huge amount of graduates or first-time people who are settling into new roles really struggling with that whole settling-in process. And whether that's doing a presentation or doing collaboration, um, we definitely see the need for more mentoring, more support, more collaboration, And definitely uh, it's an area that really deserves focus for this cohort of employees. So I guess this goes back to the junior employees who are coming into the workforce now, spending part of their university years or their school years being isolated from their peers. So what happened then in terms of their interaction that affected them in this way that affects things like presentations and communication skills? I think we see kind of two main things. One is that um, normal networking, collaboration, engagement, you know, having to do a presentation in front of everybody, those kind of skills weren't, uh, you know, tested, um, trialed. People didn't build the confidence in those skills that they maybe ordinarily would have. Mm. That's one thing. And second of all, we're noticing as well that just people's uh, drive and their resilience is that little bit, Uh, more in terms of confidence that we need to give them that extra little bit of coaching, that extra support. And organisations are very much willing to do so. But I think it's something that needs to be very proactive, as we've seen in the research. It's definitely something that's impacting performance and impacting retention if we don't. 
Mm. So how does that manifest itself? A junior recruit comes into a company. They are expected to em- embrace the team and become part of the team. They can't do that because their social skills aren't up to par. What does a company who takes a graduate wants to invest in that graduate? What, a, what can the company do to help them? I think um, the mentoring and having somebody who is going to be supporting them and coaching them proactively is the first step uh, in terms of offering them that support. And I think by having that mentor, we can normalise the fact that, look, you're not the only one who's maybe experiencing lack of confidence in certain areas of the job, or you might be out of your comfort zone or out of your depth in certain elements of it, like the presentations or collaboration, etc. And I think that support, normalising it, is one huge thing because that makes it a lot more, you know, achievable in terms of, okay, same as everybody else, this is just another area of my performance I need to work on. And the other element, I suppose, is we're seeing a lot more, the hybrid is facilitating more collaboration, more networking with the peers, more sharing of learning, more, I suppose, reverse mentoring. Um, And I think all of those things combined are really helping people in terms of that support structure. And would the hybrid working now that is manifest in a lot of workforces not be reinforcing that problem? So you're a graduate, you don't have the interpersonal skill set that you should have at that level. The company is trying to train you to do better, but does it not make more sense to make somebody go into those uh, work teams in a physical way that avoids compounding the problem? We're definitely seeing people shifting from fully remote for new workers to that hybrid model and even seeing some organisations increasing the number of days you're required to be in the office in the early days. But obviously it's no good if it's just the new people that are in the office. That requires those that are mentoring and supporting and managing them to be in the office as well. So we're definitely seeing a shift from maybe two and three in terms of working from home with new people, they need more time and they actually want more time in the office. For them, that social connectedness is really important. And from an organisational perspective, to ensure that they uh, absorb the culture of the organisation, that's really important as well. So we're definitely not saying hybrid is not here to stay. It most definitely is. I think we need to, I suppose, think differently in terms of that cohort of employees to help them hit the ground running, absorb the culture and just feel that support a lot more. So we maximise their potential sooner as well. Absolutely. That makes total sense that there's no point in them being in the office on their own if they're not valuing and benefiting from the experience of of their worker colleagues around them. Um, Caroline, when you... A company uh, talks about basic skills that they expect from a graduate. Well, what are they talking about? I suppose some of those skills um, maybe aren't basic anymore, but in a lot of the graduate type interviews, things like communication skills, presentation skills, collaboration, those would be skills that you would hope people have. But I think rather than now hope they have, and again, people having previous work experience, no matter whether that's McDonald's or, you know, the local supermarket or the local hotel, they're skills that get fostered in those work environments. So equally, as much as, you know, COVID um, meant people were in a hybrid in terms of education or work or remote in terms of education, 
they also missed out the opportunity maybe to work in those types of jobs where those skills would also get fostered. Mm. So I think that's something we're a lot more aware of now, even though we might be trying to select for them, we're also trying to train and develop for them when people come on board. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Caroline Reedy from the HR Suite. Caroline, you mentioned there the importance of communication skills and it's something that is not just pertinent for the workforce, but obviously our engagement in everyday life. So when we're talking about this cohort of people, how much do you think, and and we all accept that the pandemic and COVID was an exceptional time for these students in particular, um, but how much of their lack of communications or interpersonal skills is down to that? And how much of it is maybe was going to happen anyway because you know that generation is living online more and society is becoming more a, a little bit more internalised for the individual um, and that they're just not developing the same skill sets that we maybe did the, the the children and the generation who who had to contact and deal with each other that because that's all you had I think um, without doubt COVID has fast tracked that and the fast tracking of that um, and also I suppose it's accelerated it to a level that even though you're 100% right Mandy the workforce now you know are a lot more online etc and they're used to, you know, different ways of communication, etc. But we have five generations in the workforce now. That would have been something we would have been used to. It wouldn't have been a huge kind of step change mm. from the norm. You'd have another generation with their strengths and with things we need to watch out for and complement in the work environment. But I definitely think that piece, especially for those graduate cohort, missing out on having that summer work or those part-time jobs and missing out on having more collaborative types of teamwork in school and college. I think without doubt those things from a confidence perspective now that when they're in the work environment, you know, being tested and challenged to do those type of things, I definitely think COVID has a lot more focus in terms of that than anything else. Yeah, you make an interesting point about normalising the idea of coaching and helping and mentoring, you know, and I think that is very helpful that it's not seen as 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 a crutch, but just as something that everybody can benefit from. But look at mentoring from the other side, you know, how important is it to find mentoring now and to, to find people who want to mentor others and, and help others get along? And if somebody was uh, looking at trying to help themselves, whether it's in an organisation or outside of their own company or organisation, what could you do to become a mentor to somebody else? I think we're now very focused on reverse mentoring. So it's not just the experienced person uh, mentoring the new person, it's vice versa as well, because the new person has amazing IT skills, knowledge of, you know, um, you know IT, they're so savvy in that regard that they can, I suppose, upskill and the mentor from the other side as well. So we're very much focused now on reverse mentoring. But like anything, I think any manager needs to be trained on the top tips in relation to coaching, feedback, you know, all the art of asking the right questions, really, which really supports the person. And also to train the mentee in terms of being open to that feedback, seeing seeing it as the positive that it is and the constructive piece that it's designed to do. So we're seeing more organisations now doing um, training in relation to mentoring and training in relation to coaching, etc. 
but I've never seen as much training for managers as there is now. We very much appreciate that managers, it's not just managing as before. You're managing hybrid workers in a lot of cases. You're managing intergenerational workforces. It's upskilling managers who might be amazing at the technical skills, whether they're an amazing accountant or an amazing engineer, but it's upskilling them in relation to the other softer skills in terms of people management. And the manager is so appreciative of the skill and the training because often if they haven't received that, that can be the hardest part of their job. Mm. And also the fact, Caroline, that the statistics released recently about employment are quite staggering. Like, I don't think we're, we're at full employment now. So everybody who does go into a company is is maybe valued in a way that they weren't before COVID. And if you're going to take someone in and invest in them, you've got to do it right. You want to keep these people there for a long time, right? Absolutely. And the old adage that people join organisations and leave managers is still as true today as it was, you know, when it was first uh, coined. And I think, you know, for the manager as well, you want them to make sure that they have the confidence and the skills to maximise their team's performance because productivity now, you know, we see the four-day week um, coming up as a trial again in Ireland, the second pilot, etc. We're constantly now trying to increase productivity and, you know, in doing so, it be flexible in terms of new ways of working, etc. The only way we can do that is to upskill managers so they can maximise employees' potential. And I think the area you focused on today, that piece around new people, you know, integrating into the workforce is no different, you know, in terms of maximising the potential of all our team. So we're looking at two big companies, Deloitte and PwC, and obviously some of the other four are going to do it as well. Um, and I'd imagine a lot of the bigger companies are already investing in this. But if you're a small company, Caroline, and you've you're, you've taken on new people, even if they're not coming directly out of university and they're not graduates, but what is the care programme? What pieces of advice would you give a small company who's just boarding new people who might be dealing with those basic skills issues that we spoke about? I think the first thing is make sure that you're giving feedback uh, on an, a regular basis and make sure that that's a two-way process. Make sure you're asking four key questions, really. What's going well? What's not going so well? What are the key goals we're going to agree? And then have you any other issues? And I think if you have those open communication conversations, you're very much supporting the person on their journey but you're also making sure that they have that check-in and that temperature check because otherwise you're going to have somebody who's, especially when they're new in a job, they get lost in terms of confidence or performance and oftentimes they just leave. And as you said, you've invested a lot in getting a really good person. The last thing you want is to have to go back to the drawing board and recruit again and get the same problem um, at the end of that recruitment journey if you don't provide that mentoring, that coaching, that support. So I think feedback for me is huge. And the second thing is train your managers to give feedback and to maximise people's performance. There's lots of training now available that you can do online. You can, you know, there's so much opportunity as well as doing it in person. But the, all that opportunity is hugely complementary in terms of that maximising both the manager's experience and the employee journey. So I think that's going to really help with attraction and and retention, which is key at the minute. Well, Caroline, that's very useful advice. And thank you so much for all of your insights today. That was Caroline Reedy from the HR Suite. Great.
You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up next, we'll examine the reopening of a landmark battle in the EU's campaign to stop sweetheart deals for multinationals. That's after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, it's the 13 billion euro that no one seems to want. On the 23rd of May, the European Union's highest court is going to hold a hearing on the European Commission's last ditch attempt to make Apple pay Ireland more than 13 billion in taxes. It could pave the way for a final ruling on what could be the world's biggest ever antitrust case. Joining me now to explain it all, hopefully, is Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post. Lorcan, you're welcome back to taking stock. Thanks very much, Mandy. Now, you're writing about it in this week's Sunday Business Post, but before you tell us what's going to happen, you might just remind us all what happened in 2016 and how this all started. Yeah, I suppose this goes back to the European Commission. Um, it's, it's part of a wider uh, focus on multinational tax structures that has been dominated, I suppose, um, over the last decade, we've seen that through the OECD process where Ireland has now signed up to a 15% tax rate. But the wrangling over where uh, multinational companies pay their tax and how much they pay has been going on quite a long time. And understandably, you know, institutions like the European Commission have been looking at big players like Apple and saying, are, are they paying enough tax and where should they be paying it? Um, and, and they conducted an investigation into Apple, um, which, as you say, in 2016, uh, concluded that Apple owed the Irish state over 13 billion euros in back taxes um, for a period, a 10 year period between 2004 and 2014, where the EU Commission essentially said, uh, found that, you know, Apple had generated profits through its Irish business that hadn't been taxed properly. properly. Now, the Irish state and Apple um, both uh, rejected this analysis and the Irish state has been hand in hand with Apple all along in this journey appealing against it um, which you know has created the funny scenario where you have a government saying it doesn't want 13 billion euro in taxes from um, from a large multinational but I think it was obviously very important to the government that um, its credibility as a country that taxed multinationals properly was was defended, and that you know the state um, hadn't been allowing uh, Apple to, you know, been given a favourable treatment or or reducing its tax bills. So so that was basically the background to the EU Commission's investigation. Um, uh, it, it made those findings in 2016. Ireland and the Apple appealed them, and then in 2020, uh, the General Court of the European Union found that Ireland and Apple were correct in their appeal and they dismissed the case and where we are today is that the EU Commission has um, appealed subsequently appealed that that decision by the court and has gone to the highest court in Europe to try and get I suppose the final settlement on this what what, what way it's going to go so we're kind of in the last uh, hurdle for what way this is going to fall um, for, for Ireland and Apple. Yeah now as you say you know at a European level there's been a long argument about the corporation tax rate in various different countries and the effect of corporation tax rate for some multinationals and that's at the core of all of this but can you um, just outline what the implications for Apple would be if the Court of Justice of the European Union upheld the Commission's decision? Well I think you know the 13 billion euros that the Commission claims that they owe is sitting in an escrow account um, and it's waiting to be transferred either way, either back to Apple or to the Irish state, depending on the outcome. So 
from the financial perspective, 13 billion euro is a lot to the Irish state. It's actually not that lo- a lot of money from Apple's perspective. It's an enormous company and um, it pays tens of billions of euros in tax every year. Um, so financially, I don't think it'd be a major dent to Apple. But what it is, but I in, suppose, in reputationally. Of, yeah, reputation and also the concept of, of state aid and the implications that, that what that would mean for them as a company and their operations. Exactly, exactly. I mean, Apple is the biggest company in the world. Why does it need state aid would be the question mm. if this is what is found. Um, but yeah, I think reputationally, this is where the biggest damage is, not just to, to Apple, but to Ireland as well. I mean, that's why the Irish government has defended this so vigorously is because um, they see that, you know, we have to defend our reputation as a country that taxes multinationals properly and we're not a tax haven uh, system. So that, that to me, I think is what's on the line the most uh, mm. when this uh appeal kicks off in the European uh, Court of Justice uh, later this month. Yeah, and and as you rightly mentioned there, for Ireland, the reputational damage could, or implications, let's not say damage, implications could be even greater than them for for Apple because it does bring in that um, issue I mentioned earlier about the avoidance um, of, of multinationals and big corporations paying tax here. So, it's it's really not in the Irish government's interest that this would not go in their favour. But if it did, just just that if it did, what would the wider implications for us be? Uh, well, it's, I suppose I mean it would it would re, you know increase that focus that we've seen on on Ireland and uh, our tax system here, and also the international tax system. Um, I suppose your listeners will remember last year when the OECD process uh, was talking about the you know, the move to the 15% tax rate, which Ireland eventually signed up to and all the hand-wringing that went on before that and how maybe it might damage our economy. Um, you know, tax international tax system has been under intense scrutiny um, and Ireland has been at the heart of that because mm. our economy has been so successful at attracting foreign direct investment. Companies come here for multitudes of reasons, but there's no denying that our favourable tax system is a part of it. Um and we've seen changes to the international tax rules, which is, you know, in trying to, I, I mean, make sure that companies are paying their fair share. And that's what's driven, I suppose, the recent spike in Irish tax corporate tax receipts. We've seen an extraordinary growth in the Irish ta- corporate tax receipts over the last three, four years. Um, I think we're on course to hit 23, 24 billion euros in corporate tax receipts this year. And even this, the, the Department of Finance is forecasting that will grow to 27 billion uh, mm-hmm. by 2026. So, and that's because they've tightened up a lot of the rules for multinationals um, and there's an intense focus, you know, to try and make sure they're paying their way. I, I think what's interesting, Mandy, is Apple held a, a bit of a briefing with a journalist uh, last week on um, ahead of this uh, uh, case. And they've told us how um, between 2003 and 2014, the company paid 577 million euros in taxes to the Irish government. Um, which is which is claimed represented twelve and a half percent of all the profit it made here, but since those changes in the international tax rules I mentioned, um, mm. you know, over recent years, Apple's tax payments to the Irish state have ballooned to an enormous level. I mean, there's it's it's very difficult to say exactly, but it looks like Apple now pays three to four billion euros a year to the Irish government. So that's in one year, it's suddenly now paying three to four billion euros. And then over a 10 year period, it only paid 577 million euros. So I think it'd be very interesting to see how does does the EU Commission lean into that to say that, well, now that the, the rules have been changed and some of the back 
um, doors have been closed. Apple is paying its full amount, which it claims, this is what the the, 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 the crux of the EU Commission's case is, that the, it did not pay the full amount of tax it was supposed to between 20, 2004 and 2014. So I think, that, I think that's okay. very interesting um, to play out. Well, yeah, at least it's providing them with a, an, an out if, if, if they need it or are of a mind to give it. But the, the issue of the 13 billion retrospectively will still have to be dealt with one way or another. Um, you mentioned a briefing by the company Apple. Are the Irish government saying anything at the moment? Are they out doing their briefings yet or what will be their defence? Um, I think they've, well, the Irish government, you know, they, they don't really comment, obviously, on, on individual cases, but they they've, you know, been upfront that they're working closely with Apple on this. Their legal teams of the Irish state are engaged with the legal teams of Apple. So I think they'll be side by side uh, when the appeal kicks off at the end of May. Um, and as we've discussed, it is it is reputationally, this is an important uh, legal case for the Irish state. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh, in terms of, you can expect the Irish government to be singing off very much the same hymn sheet as Apple. Uh, I think what they... What we were told from Apple during the week is that they expect the European Commission to um, to focus on the factual analysis that was contained in the previous judgment by the court, and they're going to try and dig into that. So it'll be very much a, a legal defence. Um, you know, it'll, it'll come down to very technical legal terms whether this case, what direction this case goes uh, when the appeal is, is mm. finally heard later this month. And what about the implications of this case for the relationship between the European Union and other member states beyond Ireland? Um, well, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, Ireland would have the support of maybe smaller states um, mm. that are trying to develop their economies and grow. Um, and the European Commission, you know, it, it is dominated by the big players, um, Germany and France. Uh, and they're the ones who have, re- particularly France, have really led the charge against corporate tax um, and trying to get multinational companies to pay more. So it's an interesting sort of dichotomy that's emerged in the European Union. It's obviously we're all in it together, but within the 27 countries, um, there's clusters. And, and Ireland, as a small country, um we tend to band together with the, we used to be very closely aligned to the UK before it obviously left the European Union, but we tend to band together with other small countries like the Netherlands, the Nordics, who similar kind of economies, similar size, um, and to try and give us, I suppose, combined weight against um, the bigger bigger forces uh, in, in Europe, the dominant players like Germany and France. And um, there's definitely an element of that uh, in, in this as well, where the European Commission is sort of driving the agenda that has been very publicly um, set by the French government over the last decade in terms of its desire to really rein in multinationals and tax them at a much higher level than, you know, they see the investment that Ireland has won over the last 30, 40 years and, and they're, um, you know, they claim they want a, 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 a fair playing field. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it, for Ireland as a small country, they've always argued that we need tools to be able to compete with a big big country like like France or Germany because we don't have the same financial firepower that they would have to offer subsidies or, or benefits to countries. A good example actually is Intel, uh, the, the recent Intel plant, they're going to build a large microchip foundry um, 
that came down to here in Europe, that, that came down to three countries, Ireland, Poland and Germany. Germany won it because they were able to offer Intel six and a half billion euros of state subsidies to build the plant. And now Intel are looking for another six billion and they're probably going to get it from the German state. Mm. I mean, Ireland is a wealthy country, but we don't have that kind of money to be handing out to multinationals to attract mm. them. So we've always relied on tax as a, a lever to attract companies. Um, so I think that would be a key part of, you know, the governments uh, that smaller states need to be able to to fight for investment as well as big com- countries. Absolutely. And, you know, our economy is a bit of an outlier now in a European context uh, in terms of how successful we are. Before I let you go, Lorcan, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you spoke to us about the um, wind industry in Ireland and the potential that it held for us. This week, the government held its auction. Did you think that the pricing was as you expected? The pricing was unexpected, I have to say, um, how competitive it was. Um, and from an Irish, the government's perspective, you'd have to say it was very successful uh, auction results last day. The uh, offshore wind uh, auction prices delivered an average weighted price of just over 86 euros a megawatt hour, which is um, for a first time to do this is very, very good. Um, and it was totally unexpected, I have to say, speaking to a lot of people in the industry over the last few months they really would have felt that the prices were going to be quite high from the very first auction because of a number of factors. Um, you know, there's been a lot of inflation over uh, the last years, and that really impacts turbines and, and some of the technology, but also like the risk uh, in, involved, um, the risk of the Irish policy system. It's still very, you know, it's a risky policy system where we're only starting out. Um, but, but it seems that in the last couple of months that companies decided that like, they really needed to get this the, the, these contracts and it, it forced them to strip out a lot of cost out of their projects to be as lean as possible and this the, you know that's what resulted in that really that quite extraordinary auction or figure that was um, thrown up in the auction uh, earlier this week so it is a positive story i think it's a landmark moment for the irish state to see you know this is the first step uh, for a really skilled uh, offshore wind industry in ireland What's most interesting is all of these projects now have to try and navigate the planning system. So that would be something that we have to keep a close eye on over the coming years because these are complex projects. They're going into the Irish Sea. Most of them are going to be in the Irish Sea off the coast of Dublin and Wicklow. Um, And there's undoubtedly going to be uh, objections and and pressure against them. So that will be interesting to watch how the projects come through that system. For sure, we'll definitely have you back to talk about it another time. But it is a sign that industry sees huge potential here in Ireland, but maybe also sees how vulnerable we are in terms of our energy security. But we'll be back another day to discuss it. But for now, that was Lorcan Allen of the Sunday Business Post. Lorcan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. Now, in the US, the writer's strike rages on and as pickets begin with big crowds at Netflix, Disney and Paramount, we'll head stateside to hear what's happening after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now for our final item today, we're turning stateside. Writer strikes are well underway over in the US as writers from some of the most popular shows on television and streaming services have begun picketing. A central concern of their fight is how artificial intelligence such as ChatGPT will affect their jobs. Joining me now is Marina Fang. She's senior cultural reporter with the Huffington Post. Marina, you're very welcome. Now, Marina, when we talk about writer strikes like this, 
just how many people are involved and where does a writer go to protest? Where do these pickets manifest themselves? Well, so I'm in New York um, and that's where one of the um, two main locations where the writers are, are picketing have been. The other is obviously in Los Angeles and Hollywood. Um, in terms of the number of writers we're talking about, these are the film and TV members of the Writers Guild of America West and the Writers Guild of America East, which are the two big writers unions um, representing film, TV, um, and digital media. I should also disclose that I am a member of the Writers Guild of America East, but not on, not involved with the strike, not on the film and TV side, but on the digital media side. But anyway, we're talking about 11,500 film and TV writers. So a lot of writers, as you mentioned, a lot of writers on big shows that you and I probably enjoy watching in big movies, but also a lot of just, you know, everyday working writers. And that's really the the sort of central part of why they're striking. Mm. Like, I don't know about you, um, but this is very unique to me. I mean, I'm not aware of any other industry body that is engaged at such a sort of high profile level with um, such an immediate discussion about their career, the prospects of their career, the implications of their career and chat GPT. Are you? Not really. I mean, it's it's definitely an issue, artificial intelligence. Um, it's It's an issue that's playing out, certainly in the tech field, of course, but also in a lot of creative industries. You know, media is another place where people have been concerned about the encroachment of AI and how that might affect the integrity of people's work, publishing as well, art, um, a lot of creative fields. But this is definitely the biggest, you know, the strike itself is definitely the biggest sort of turning point Mm. in a sense of... Mm of where this issue has really come to the forefront. And so let's talk about uh, what the striking issues are about. What are the primary concerns that these striking writers have in relation to the use of AI and the potential use of AI in Hollywood? Right. Um, Obviously, there are a lot of issues at stake in the strike, but in terms of artificial intelligence and the use of it, the writers, um, they have, their, their central concern is obviously you know, we're heading into a future where we're not quite there yet, but there is that risk that, you know, AI could replace the work that the writers are doing. Again, we're not really there yet, but the writers really want to try to get ahead of that and try to create some sort of protections and guidelines and and rules and safeguards around the use of AI. And during the negotiations, with the on the other side of the bargaining table, which then led to this strike, the writers propose three main things. One, they want they want to make sure that AI can't be used in actual scripts, like in, like ChatGPT cannot be writing a TV script or a movie script. That's number one. Number two, they also want to make sure that AI isn't used as source material. So, like, you know, we, we, we often see a book adapted into a movie or a show. And what they're saying is they do not want that book to be written by ChatGPT. Um, and then the third area is they also don't want writers' work to be set into a, you know, for people who don't know, AI is often, you know, a human will sort of, 
train AI to, you know, write certain things or, you know, to sort of figure out the algorithm behind how it all works. And so what the writers do not want is then being used to sort of, you know, spit out what AI is is writing. So those are the main things that they propose. Mm. Um, the studio executives responded by saying, basically saying nothing. They rejected the proposals and instead proposed, quote, annual meetings on the use of technology. So this is why the writers are on strike, in part because they, they feel that it's really absurd that instead of acknowledging having a common agreement on, yes, we we all feel like this is a problem that we should be trying to solve. The studio executives didn't even acknowledge the problem and just said, OK, we're going to have a meeting to talk about it. Mm. Yeah, it's really a non-offer completely. I mean, just the fact right. that they're going to sit down and audit what's happening in the AI universe every year is hardly any kind of counter offer, is it really? Right. And it's it's this is a technology that's evolving very quickly, which is why the writers are so concerned and why they want to set up these kinds of rules. Because, mm. again, like I said, I, I don't think we're at a point where necessarily writers work is being replaced by AI. But if the technology continues to evolve the way that it is, we are running into a hugely risky stage of of, of writing and of this industry. Mm. Um, one, one of the writers I spoke to on the picket line had a really good way of putting it. Like the studio executives are not acknowledging the problem. They're just saying like, we will update you on, instead of saying, okay, we're concerned about these machines. We will update you on how the machines are doing every year. That's essentially what these meetings would be. They're not really solving the problem or even, trying to address it. They're just updating the writers on how these machines are doing. Mm. And I might come back to that in a second just to discuss the, the, the counteroffer. But I want to pick up on one of the three issues that you've raised or that the, the writers uh, unions have raised themselves. And um, the last one that you mentioned there was that writers will want a safeguard or want to, to ensure that they're not going to be used to train um, AI. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting point, really, isn't it? Because um, I suppose it, it needs that uh, kickstart of populating the system with the learnings and experience that many of these writers have. AI can't really generate without them, or so it seems at the moment. Right. Um, and, you know, if for people who have maybe played around with ChatGPT, I mean, you can you can do that. It's, it's open source software and you can see, like, you can type in things like prompts or, you know, certain things that you want the technology to draw from. And so that's one of the things that the writers are really concerned about because, you know, they could, they could take the ideas that they have developed, put them into AI, and then the AI could then generate a script around that. Mm. Um, and that could lead to all kinds of complications. The, yeah. the script, I mean, already when you use AI, you can see that it's very prone to error. Um, for example, I am a reporter. Sometimes I use AI, you know, there are AI transcription services, for example, and they're not great. A lot of times they, they, you know, they get the job done, but they're not really accurate. There's always going to be some things that you have to sort of manually go in. You, a human, have Mm. to manually go in and fix. Mm. Um, and so that's turning, that's, you know, that's one 
potential complication and even worse, like things that are offensive or things that are really and so the writers are really concerned about just again the, the sort of the lack of safeguards right now when it comes to AI. It's a relatively new technology and we've seen this before with other kinds of technology when things are still thought there's a lot of risk involved mm. and when you don't kind of create some level of of rules and regulations that could lead to a lot of really really potentially harmful things. Yeah, how might, you know, the strike, uh, a strike like this, you've seen a similar strike, I think it was back in 2007. How does a strike like this yeah. affect relationships between writers and, say, production companies? Like, is there, is there still a legacy left from the last one? And, and is it affecting the relationships between them now? Well, I think, I think there's, there's a couple things at play here. Yes, the, the strike, this is the, the, um, some of the issues in this strike are a continuation of the last strike. So in 2007 and 2008, that was the last time the writers had a strike of this level. And there were some common issues involving streaming. Well, at the time it was sort of, you know, pre-streaming, but the internet and um, writers being paid for content that is on the internet. And you know, obviously a lot of that is still very much relevant and, you know, even more so today. In terms of the relationship between the studios and the writers, one of the main ways that the strike has sort of raised the pressure, and, and both times actually, is by shutting down production. Mm. Um, right now, as we speak, a lot of the writers' ticket lines have really focus, they, they've sort of focused their attention on actually going to filming locations. If they know a show is filming today at, you know, X location, they'll go there, set up their picket line. Um, and because Hollywood is a union town, so not just, you know, the writers are unionized, many parts of Hollywood are unionized, they're able to use the power of union solidarity. So, for example, many crew members are also members of two major unions mm. in the US. Yeah, I guess they, I, I guess if they're on those locations as well, they're making it difficult for many high profile actors to to come out and, and potentially support them. Right. And 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 many of those actors have been on the picket lines with them. And so there's a lot of sort of interunion solidarity happening, which has been helping to kind of raise the pressure and, and turn up the heat on the studio executives. Mm. What If that will lead to a deal is obviously still kind of an open question. Um, a lot of people are kind of thinking that this strike could go on for a while. Um, and the last strike, the one in 2007 and 2008, went on for several months. Um, but it, it is unquestionable that it's definitely having an effect on, you know, putting the pressure on these studio executives to hopefully hopefully come back to the table, try to meet the writers halfway in these negotiations or, you know, try to get them closer because they are very far apart right now. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe it will lead to a deal. For sure. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm talking to Marina Fang, who's senior culture reporter with the Huffington Post. Just two issues I want to to um, ask you about before we have to bring this interview sadly to a close. One is uh, to 
go back on that issue of what the strike was about 2007, 2008 and the advance of technology. You know, it's hard to believe that in such a few years we're now talking about the, crea- you know, the replacement of creativity, you know, in 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 that industry. Um, but maybe in a wider sense in the entertainment and maybe maybe even the media industry in general, it's it's the core of this is about executives and shareholders benefiting disproportionately to the creators and now there's just an added interest here which is the advance of technology and AI. Um, Do you think that uh, things have moved along a lot quicker than people maybe had anticipated about that, you know, replacement of creativity within that particular industry? Yeah, I think I do. And and you, you mentioned kind of the larger, beyond AI, just the sort of general kind of gap between the executives and the writers. I mean, a lot of the issues at stake in AI is one of them. A lot of them kind of go back to the the big theme of this strike and the big theme that the writers are really trying to emphasize is just the fact that they are the people that produce the shows and the movies that these companies and these executives profit from and what they're asking for. And the reason that they're striking is they want to be able to preserve their profession and preserve their livelihoods and make sure that they're paid fairly, that they're working in conditions that are equitable. Um, and yeah, that their work is that remains their work mm. and that they get to get, you know, profit from or get a piece of those profits. I mean, we're talking about these huge companies, you know, streaming companies, media companies, and executives who make tens of millions of tens of millions of dollars a year, compared to a lot of these writers who, like I said, are, are everyday working writers, mm. and they're just trying to get health insurance and their pensions, and you know, just get paid for the work that they do. And what streaming has done, and what the the huge boom in streaming and technology has done is created this huge gap between what the executives are making, what these companies make, and what the writers are making. The Mm. writers are often making a very, very, very small sliver of what their shows and what their movies are are generating in terms of revenue. Sure, Marina, just a final question and briefly, because sadly we're running out of time. But in the excellent piece that you wrote on this, and if anyone wants to check it out, it is on the Huffington Post, you do reference another opinion piece that's coming from the LA Times. And it's sort of about this this notion that there's finally more diversity in uh, Hollywood. There's finally more um, balance in terms of gender equality and you're finally seeing a different face of um, the, the, the movie or the entertainment industry and just as that happens um, we're now back to square one where these people and maybe those unrepresented communities aren't important anymore. Do you subscribe to that? Do you think that's a conspiracy theory or do you think it's just a coincidence of advancing technology? I I definitely, and I should should note that's that was something a writer I interviewed um, brought up to me in that piece. I, I think it's definitely a huge issue. I, I cover culture, obviously, and a huge issue in culture right now is diversity and representation, and people and stories are told, and how those stories get told, and who's represented on screen, and 
as as that writer mentioned, as a lot of writers have told me, we're finally at a point where, you know, Hollywood is trying to slowly but surely try to address this issue. And, and there are a lot more writers of color and queer writers, disabled writers. They're finally, you know, getting to be part of the industry and shaping these stories. This is also why the strike really matters, because if writers aren't paid fairly, if, you know, writers can't make a living, that greatly affects who gets to be in the industry. And it, and historically, when writers aren't given a fair shot, when, when the economic conditions are such that only certain kinds of people, certain, you know, rich people who come from rich or privileged backgrounds get to make it in Hollywood, that really affects what we see on screen. And it means that only certain kinds of stories are told. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, stories are so important. And thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast for us on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, the World Health Organization has recently declared the end of the COVID-19 emergency. So I'll be joined by Jack Horgan-Jones of the Irish Times and Hugh O'Connell of the Irish Independent to see how Ireland has handled the crisis and if we're any better prepared for another emergency. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks, as always, to today's guest and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo de Silva Scott on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.